It is a Saturday morning at CCO Land when we have a bit of a wine chat with our friend Jack Farrell from Haskell's. Good morning, Jack. Good morning, Denny. How are you this fine morning? I'm doing quite well and anxiously awaiting some much-needed rain today, for sure. <laughs> yes, that'll be nice. Yeah. The lawns will all get greened up. Let's hope so. Well, in the meantime, uh, what shall we talk about today? Well, you know, I thought I'd go back to another topic that we talk about more and more today than we ever did before. But it just seems to be one of those areas that's growing like topsy, and that's rosé wines. You know, rosé is a type of wine that incorporates a little color from the skins of the grape into it. And, you know, many, many years ago, most white wines were in fact rosé because they didn't have the technology to separate the skin soon enough uh, and there would always be fact rosé because they didn't have the technology to separate the skin soon enough, uh, and there would always be like a little pink tinge to the wine. But rosé wines are a relatively new phenomenon in the world of wines. Uh, the popularity came about after World War II of rosé around the world. And rosé is really... Uh, not a simple wine. Everybody thinks, oh, it's just a simple little wine. Not really. You know, the the uh, winemaker works very hard to get a particular style in a rosé. And uh, sometimes they put forth an enormous effort, and and the results are rather startling. Uh, there's the main way to make uh, rosé wine for winemakers, something called Sangi, which is blood in French. And what they do is bleed the uh, the juice with the uh, uh, skins attached, and it produces that. Blending red wine with white wine to get a rosé is frowned on in most wine areas of the world. And it, this, in fact, in France, it's illegal. You just can't do that. That you can't make a rosé that way. But today was efficiency of presses and fermentation tanks and all that type of stuff. Uh, they're making some remarkable wines that are called rosé. <clears throat> People are beginning to get over that uh, mental block that rosé is something that my old Aunt M would sip on in the afternoon, a little like sherry. Or uh, you know, today rosés are made for men too. You know, it's amazing to me. But just as recently as maybe 12 years ago, we probably only had eight or ten rosés in our, all our stores. Today we have literally hundreds, maybe even thousands, different rosés that people can choose from. And there's so many wonderful wines uh, that are rosé. You know, it, it, there has to be a reason that it's so desirable. Just think about Champagne, for example, that small area north and a little bit uh, east of Paris, uh, produces a sparkling wine that's acclaimed all over the world. Uh, and guess what the most expensive champagne you can get is? The rosé champagne, where the rosé, uh, the champagne is a little pink and has a little more flavor. You know, uh, when you add uh, red wine uh, or red wine grapes to the mix, they're usually bigger, bolder, than white wine grapes, so the rosés have a little bit more character. And as I said, until World War II, 
uh, rosés weren't very, they made them, but they were just not much of a category at all. After World War II, a dramatic turn took place. The, and, and it took place in, of all countries, Portugal. The Matus family decided they would try to market a pink wine with a little spritz in it. Uh, it wasn't really a carbonated wine uh, like a Prosecco or a champagne or a sparkling wine, but it had a little bit of effervescence to it. And all of a sudden, Matus took off like a rocket, and it became popular all over Europe, all over the United States, and introduced an awful lot of people to uh, rosé wine. In fact, today, Matus still has a big presence in Europe, not so much here in the United States. At the same time, another family uh, in Portugal decided they would introduce uh, a sparkling wine called Lancers. And Lancers introduced their sparkling wine in an unusual stone crock bottle. And again, it just swept the country by storm, particularly the United States, and became for many, many years, almost a decade, was the number one selling wine in the United States. And Matus came in an unusual shaped bottle, too, what the German call a books bottle. It's short and squat, and uh, that Matus came in that. Well, those things dominated uh, the pink wine market or rosé wine market. And then all of a sudden, uh, something appeared on the horizon called White Zinfandel. And this was uh, introduced by the Trinchero family uh, at Sutter Home. And the Sutter Home White Zinfandel was really made almost by an accident. They left the uh, Zinfandel grapes uh, during fermentation, took it off, and it was sort of a little on the sweet side, and he thought, well, we'll market it anyway, and we'll call it White Zinfandel. be a good way to get rid of all the Zinfandel grapes we have that we don't have much of a market for. Well, it, they took off, and uh, blush wines became an enormous part of the wine thing. And that's one of the things today Rosé is still struggling to get over. All those blush wines were kind of associated with... Uh, sweeter wines and there's nothing wrong with sweet wines but uh, you know most people that drink wine prefer drier wines at any rate the sanji method in the bleeding is uh the juice is removed but left long enough to have a little bit of color and that's the most popular way to make rosé wines around the world and color is very important in rosé wines and people struggle to make that color very attractive and it is very attractive you know whether we're talking about a pale onion skin uh, almost a white wine to a, a wine that if you looked at it even though it's rosé you'd say well i think that might be red wine but it's not it's just the depth of the color that they impart to it and the aroma and flavor of uh rosés are primarily influenced by the varietal grapes used and you know production of of rosé is one of those things that I think any winemaker at one point or another would like to try it because uh, it's such an interesting adaptation of the grapes from your particular terroir. And it's so interesting that many, many winemakers for years and years and years made a rosé for their house use, uh, something they have in the summer, light and easy and that, but never marketed it. And then all of a sudden, 
they started to become popular, and they began to market them. I often tell the story of being with Nadine Rothschild uh, at a party in Bordeaux, and she was serving a rosé, and I said, this is just delicious. She said, well, we make it for family and friends. And then I said, would you ever sell any of it? Well, yeah, sure. Well, I bought some, and it, it just flew out the doors of our business. It was so good, people just loved it. But the <coughs> French rosés are really probably the most popular rosés in the entire world because almost every single area of France makes a rosé. And, of course, the biggest area is Provence. And that's, of course, become extraordinarily popular because so many celebrities have bought big villas there and are making a rosé wine to sell. The one that comes to mind is Brad Pitt and his former wife. They had a, a large uh, vineyard there, and I think uh, uh, that George uh, Clooney also has a vineyard there. But uh, Provence is a wonderful, big, big area of France. And about 80% of the wine produced in Provence is rosé. And, uh, boy, I'll tell you, the variance is just incredible. But Provence rosés are very dry, usually, and a wonderful wine to have in the summer, light wines to go with light foods, uh, etc. So Provence really is the main engine of French rosés. However, there are other areas we often hear me talk about, particularly my favorite rosé comes from the Rhone Valley. It's called Tavelle, and it's made primarily with Grenache grape. And uh, all they make in Tavelle is rosé wine. And it's usually <clears throat> the biggest and boldest of all the red, uh, of all the rosé wines that are made anywhere in the world. And I always say, Tavelle is a perfect wine for uh, a red wine drinker. If you want to try your very first rosé, you'll like it right away because it's big, powerful. And then, of course, right across the river from Tavelle is Chateau Neuf de Pop and Southern Côte de Rhone. And they all make rosés, too. There's Chateau Neuf de Pop rosé. But the main rosés are these little Côte de Rhone rosés, which are absolutely delicious and uh, very, very affordable. The uh, rosés from uh, the Côte de Rhone are just terrific. And then, of course, we're forgetting another area that used to be very popular and still is in making uh, rosé wine is the Loire Valley. And, of course, Rosé d'Anjou, there's a town in the Loire Valley called Anjou. And the rosé from there has been popular for uh, Decades. It, it's a little sweeter, but it's a wonderful rosé. And uh, because of that sweetness, it even will last a little bit. Same thing with the Tavelle, uh, because it's so big. Some of those wines you can have two, three, four years uh, after their vintage. However, most rosés are designed and made to be drunk very young and very quickly. <clears throat> and if you see a rosé, it's more than four or five years old. I uh, have some trepidation about trying it because uh, it uh, might be over the hill. Uh, champagne rosés, we just talked about the best the, of the best uh, are champagne rosés. You, you know, Dom Perignon is a very expensive champagne. 
but Dom Perignon Rosé is even more expensive. The same thing with Vouv Clicquot. Uh, it's an expensive champagne, but if you get the Vouv Clicquot Rosé, it's even more expensive. So anyhow, there's all of these wonderful areas of France make and produce wonderful rosés. But then there are other rosés from other European countries. Italy makes terrific rosés, rosados. Uh, and they're made by short maceration, so they're sweet, uh, but not too, too sweet. They, they're just right to have with the antipasto. Uh, Germany makes wonderful rosé. Austria, Switzerland, they all do. And, of course, the Spanish rosés are very popular and always have been. And let's not forget Portugal that started this whole explosion with Matus and Lancers. Portuguese rosés are absolutely terrific, and they're not as sweet as the Matus and Lancers used to be years ago. The wines have some character, and some of those Portuguese rosés are worth seeking out. But then you have all the uh, New World, you know, Chile, Argentina, Australia, New Zealand. They all produce remarkable rosés. I just had a New Zealand rosé that I thought was absolutely amazing uh, and had it with Branzino, which is a fish. Uh, it was just absolutely a marriage made in heaven. It was great. And today, a lot of great rosés are coming out of California and Oregon in our own country, and including the Finger Lake districts of New York. But some of those uh, rosés from the Willamette Valley that are all Pinot Noir are really worth seeking out. They're just absolutely delicious. I think you get the idea. Rosé isn't just a simple little thing, pink something to amuse yourself on a hot afternoon with. Uh, Rosé is here to stay. It makes a fabulous aperitif. It really goes with so many dishes. It's very versatile wine when pairing with food. I mean, you can not have a lot of issue when you pair a good rosé with, with whatever dish you're having. Uh, because it's, for the most part, uh, not overpowering. You don't have to worry about it overpowering the dish. And because of its soft, easy quality, it pairs very nicely with most foods, particularly any kind of light foods you're having. Uh, uh, whenever we have salad niçoise, which we have a lot during the summer hot months that we're in, days that we're enduring right now, a little bit of rosé with that cold salad goes a long way, or perhaps you're making a seafood salad with some shrimp in that. Try a rosé. I think you'll be just astonished at how versatile rosés are and why there is definitely a place in the lexicon of wine for rosé wines. And everybody seller should have a bottle or two of it. Uh, some people just like rosé a whole lot. Others find it uh, just too innocuous. But whatever which way you go on, Rosé, believe me, you're missing the boat if you don't try it because some of them are remarkably well-made wines and, indeed, worth seeking out. And, boy, can you find a great selection at any one of the Haskell's locations. You know, they love to talk about wine at Haskell's and pair wine with food, and they're quite good at it, if I do say so. Uh, there's uh, Haskell's near you where you can save big, big dollars on wine, we're right in the middle of our summer sale, and some of those wines are just remarkable values. 
there's a Haskell's near you where you can pick up some of these great values and all sorts of rosés, believe me. There's a Haskell's in Bloomington, Excelsior, Faribault. There's a Haskell's in Maple Grove at 22,000 square feet of wines. There's a Haskell's in downtown Minneapolis with free parking on Saturday and Sunday. Grove at 22,000 square feet of wines. There's Haskell's in downtown Minneapolis with free parking on Saturday and Sunday. Haskell's at Ridgedale, Plymouth, St. Paul's Highland Village, Stillwater, White Bear Lake, and Woodbury. And if you can't come into Haskell's, go to Haskell's.com. And don't forget, Haskell's does deliver. Fantastic, Jack. Let's talk again next week. I'm going to look forward to that, Denny. Jack Farrell from Haskell's.